Today we hear God's word from John 18, verses 28 through 38a. This is Jesus before Pilate. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Gary Miles, and I am one of the elders here. In 1939, T.S. Eliot gave a series of lectures at the University of Cambridge in which he described a fork in the road. Western civilization, he said, will either continue along a Christian path or it might adopt a form of modern paganism. We don't really use that term paganism anymore, do we? Well, I'll get back to that later. Here's a picture of T.S. Eliot. Looks like he belongs in a Jimmy Stewart movie, I think, there. If you're not familiar with him, he's no lightweight when it comes to critiquing society and life in general, really. He was born in the U.S., but lived most of his adult life in England. In addition to being a poet, of course, he was a playwright, a literary critic. His most famous work was a poem he published in 1922 entitled The Wasteland. Some call it the most important English poem of the 20th century. It basically expresses the mood, uh, maybe the disgust, that grew out of the horrors of World War I. It's interesting that about a decade earlier, Eliot formally committed to his Christian faith. And since then, he wrote extensively, uh, maintaining that culture and faith of a people should be intertwined. Well, let's jump ahead 70 years. Does anybody recognize this car? Maybe this will help. Yeah, it's Google's self-driving car, or at least one of their versions, anyway. In 2009, one of the Google's uh, self-driving cars came to an intersection with a four-way stop, and it came to a halt and waited for the other cars to proceed according to the right-of-way rules. But of course, that's not what people always do. 
right? You've been there. There's the person who slows slightly and then bolts through the intersection before everyone else sorts out who really has the right-of-way. My father-in-law used to call that genuflecting. <laughs> or the person who politely waves the person to go ahead to avoid confusion, or sometimes just because they're pulling a heavy load and they know they're going to be slower. They politely do that. Or then there's the person that just stares you down and eventually nods, and you know that's your cue to go ahead and, and go. And then there's a person, of course, that just kind of starts and stops, keeps going, starts and stops, you know, and eventually, I take it, they eventually get across the intersection. Unfortunately, that day, the Google car got completely paralyzed. It locked up and it blocked the intersection. Ultimately, it had to be, you guessed it, rebooted. <laughs> now, tellingly, the Google engineer in charge of the project, now this is the lead technical engineer, he said that what he had learned from this epi episode was that Human beings need to be less idiotic. <laughs> Clearly, the social intelligence on display at that intersection was completely invisible to the Google guy. Okay, so fast forward to just this past August, actually. Not to be outdone, General Motors' robo-taxi misinterpreted some construction barriers, and it ran into some wet cement. Here's a picture of that. Of course, it got stuck. Well, the company spokesperson's response to this incident was, this was a quote, the car's AI, artificial intelligence, will learn from this. That is how it works, as it constantly is learning and improving. I'm thinking that brings a whole new meaning to the bumper sticker student driver. Okay, so what does T.S. Eliot's 39 comment on Christianity and paganism and AI and self-driving cars all have to do with Paul writing to the Philippians in first century Rome? Well, let's pray together that God might make that clear to us. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'll open our minds this morning and our hearts to understand your word and what you'd have us learn from it. I ask especially that this would not simply be a message for the moment, but that we will be moved to live out the truth of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, people who advise about giving presentations generally say two things. The first is you tell them what you're going to tell them, then you tell them, then you tell them what you just told them. Follow that? You tell them what you're going to tell them, <clears throat> then you tell them, then you tell them what you just told them. The second is to make your point multi from multiple angles to reach as many people as possible. People see things differently. Well, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, I think, is something like that. You probably have noticed there's a bit of repetition, or what seems like repetition over these past weeks. Paul's making an overarching point to the Philippian church, but he hits it from a number of different angles, and he gives multiple examples. Well, in our scripture today, Paul sort of wraps this all up, and he gives the bottom line of what he's driving at. So I want to first give a brief summary of where we've been. Remember, Paul's writing from Rome while in prison. The year's roughly 60 AD. He's addressing some apparent conflict in the church and also persecution they're experiencing. So Paul, while describing his own circumstances, he encourages them to remain strong in the faith and reminds them of their joy in Christ. He points to Christ as the ultimate example of how to live out their faith. But, of course, you can imagine almost 30 years after Jesus was on earth and well-removed geographically from the region of Galilee and Judea, 
Remember, Philippi is on the northern end of the Aegean Sea. It's a very long way from Jerusalem. It was likely a few never even knew of Jesus. So Paul also turns to specific examples. He uses himself repeatedly. He talks about Timothy. He talks about Epaphroditus. He offers these models of what it looks like in different ways to live out our faith. But remember, this is not a Christian etiquette manual. Paul points repeatedly to the joy of our salvation, but he's also quick to emphasize that salvation is a gift of grace. It's not of our own efforts, it's not our behavior, but our faith alone in Christ. Paul then begins chapter 3 with the word, finally, which you would think would imply he's going to wrap things up, but in fact, he doubles back and he reemphasizes his point again. So that brings us to our text today at verse 17. So let's go ahead and read that together. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, and I'm going to read through chapter 4, verse 1. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is their, is their destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Paul starts by using himself again and others like him as a reminder to the Philippians to look to these models or patterns of how they should be living as followers of Christ. But he then points to an example of how not to live. But first he says something pretty interesting. Now, I don't know why Paul penned the letter the way he did, using repeated examples and reminders. You might say, okay, I get the point. But I think the key in understanding it is in the beginning of verse 18. He says, For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Even with tears, he says. At least two other times Paul writes about being in tears. One is in Acts 20 where he's saying goodbye to the leaders of the church of Ephesus. And there he says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Can you feel the love that he has for them and the deep concern, knowing they're going to be pressed in their faith? His heart is breaking. Well, the other is in the second letter to the Corinthians. He says, For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. I don't have time to go into the circumstances of that letter, but again, Paul's expressing his great love for those he's ministered to and dearly wants them to, under, to stand firm in the faith. Now, imagine you all have times where a dear friends or family member is making a decision that, from your perspective, it's not going to end well. Maybe it's getting in a relationship you know is going to end in a train wreck or a life choice that you just know is not right. You want to warn the person. Sometimes you even want to scream at the person. Don't do it. 
or here's a better option, whatever it is. But doesn't your heart break to the point of tears for that person? Their life, you know, is going to be gravely affected. Well, how much more so than in matters of faith? Now, this is a small detail of this section, but I didn't want to skip over it because it makes me wonder, do I really have that much love and compassion for those to whom I have the opportunity to disciple or minister? I mean, I love you all, but I'm not exactly in tears. Maybe I should be. Maybe we all should be. So we think about really the higher eternal implications of what we believe and what we share and what we teach. Clearly in Paul's heart, this is serious stuff. It's not just feel-good religion. What he's telling these friends in the church has eternal implications for life. It matters. Well, Paul then continues in verse 18. He's pointing to another example, but as I said, in this case, it's an example they need to avoid. He says, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Well, who are these enemies of the cross? The fancy word Martin Luther coined for them is antinomians. In the early church that Paul, where Paul is describing, it would probably be along the lines of Gnosticism. They were people apparently associated with the church that took the freedom in Christ to mean not liberty, but license. They reasoned that grace is free, so it matters not at all how we live. So you can see why Paul emphasized so much the idea of living according to these earlier examples. Because there were also people right within their community that were living in a manner entirely different. What in reality were these people actually following? Well, as Paul put it, the God of their stomach. In other words, they were following their appetites, their own desires. They bought into the living by grace, but they failed to understand the heart side of the story. The part about living out your faith, living out what you confess to believe, that's the hard part. And it's especially hard in a culture that pulls you in every other direction except towards Christ. You can see how easy it would have been, and is today, to fall into this trap. Grace. Just punch that ticket to heaven by grace and live like you want. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer described as cheap grace. But then Paul turns aside that idea, that false faith, by stating the bottom line of all this, or what I'm going to call the overarching idea. Essentially, he summarizes everything he's been talking about and pointing to in this letter. But, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Let me paraphrase that. But we are citizens of heaven, and by the power and grace of Jesus Christ, we will live in glory, free from sin, free from death, eternally with him. Citizens of heaven. Paul uses that imagery of citizenship purposely. Remember, Philippi was a wealthy Roman colony, which meant the citizens of Philippi were effectively citizens of Rome, enjoying all the benefits, the protections, the wealth, and the clout of Rome itself. It was a great city with a great history. It was named after the father of Alexander the Great. The people knew their heritage and that they were citizens of the great empire of Rome. Imagine the challenge Paul is up against there. Pride in their citizenship, 
wealthy, advanced, no doubt living quite comfortably and safe, with all the benefits and perks and privileges of mighty Rome herself. Could that sound just a little bit familiar? Think about that word citizenship. What does that imply? A citizen of a country or citizenship kind of implies two main things, an allegiance to a higher power and entitled privileges and protections. You're born into this country and you're automatically granted citizenship. But that comes with responsibilities along with privileges. We follow the laws. We have the privilege of voting. We recognize certain national events. We're granted protections under the law and so on. But I think it also involves another aspect, and that's cultural. How we interact, how we live day to day, our language, our customs, our entertainment, all sorts of things that make up our daily lives. Now, to be sure, there are cultural differences as we travel our own country, and certainly when we travel to other countries. That's all part of citizenship. And a funny thing happens when we find ourselves in other cultures. We tend to start living like the culture in which we're immersed. Anyone who's done any traveling as part of missions or vacation or whatever reason can attest to this. As the expression goes, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. My work, I traveled a fair amount, and at times I, it became almost comical how I would start shifting my behavior to follow the local culture, the local citizens. I had an extended stay in England not too many years ago, and of course, it was paramount that I switched to driving on the left side of the road. That was the obvious thing. But I found myself using rather odd expressions, like, I quite agree, don't you? Or bugger, or bloke, or quid. And it extends to the behavior and manner mannerisms as well. You tend to conform. So, Paul gets to the heart of the matter. You are a citizen of a different kingdom. You owe allegiance to a different king. You should act as a citizen of a different culture. So this brings me back to T.S. Eliot's comment. Western civilization will either continue along a Christian path or it might adopt a form of modern paganism. Paganism. I imagine that word brings to mind ancient cultures, worshiping bulls, planets, and all sorts of idols. Right? The Bible refers to Moloch or Baal worship and generally involves some sort of fertility worship or worse. These are the images we tend to think of with the word pagan. But this is modern America. Nobody worships pagan gods in the world today. Well, think again. Let me quote from the Pagan Federation International website. Who knew? Paganism, it says, is a polytheistic or pantheistic nature-worshipping religion. Paganism is the ancestral religion of the whole of humanity. Did you catch that? Their claim is that it's the first and fundamental religion of all history and humanity. That's quite a claim. It continues, this ancient religious outlook remains active throughout much of the world today. Its adherents venerate nature, and worship many deities, both goddesses and gods. To be sure, there are many gods, and we all are prone to following them. Paul says their god is their stomach. The thing is that our desires, our appetites, so to speak, they fan out into many areas of our lives. They take the form of wealth, power, career, position, status, comfort, stature, material things and even science and technology. Which brings me to the Google guy. 
He could not conceive that perhaps there's more to human life than simply ones and zeros comprising software algorithms. What kingdom do you suppose he's beholden to? Or to what authority do you suppose he holds his allegiance? Now, I'm not knocking software engineers. My oldest son is one. Nor technology in general or AI or any of it. What I am saying is that life presents many potential gods. Things that promote security, wealth, success, freedom, life, utopias. History and experience time and again has proven them lacking. They do not bring true freedom. They do not bring true life. Those come only through a lived-out faith in Jesus Christ. The reality is there's no end to the gods available to us to worship. In 1939, the year T.S. Eliot gave those lectures, that's just 20 years roughly after the end of the First World War, the winds of war were blowing again. World War II was about to be launched by Germany, and someone at that time could rightly ask, how did Western Europe, the culture that claims the heritage of Christianity, come to this point again? How could Germany, the home of Luther, Protestant theological thought, commit the horrors it did? Where was the church? In 1934, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and a number of other church leaders drafted what came to be called the Barman Declaration. Its aim was to draw a line in the sand that the church was not subservient to the state or any reigning worldly culture. In this case, of course, it was Hitler and the Nazi party. Well, this document formed what was termed the Confessing Church of Germany. And at that time, there were roughly 18,000 pastors or religious leaders in Germany. Did you know that ultimately only about 3,000 signed that document? Shockingly, another 3,000 aligned directly with Hitler. These are church leaders. That left about 12,000 other leaders of the church, two-thirds of them, that chose to remain silent and not get involved. We look back on that now and can't help but be shocked and ask, how could that be? Well, Paul told us how that could be for the sake of comfort or comfort or ease or out of fear or whatever, they held their allegiance to a different kingdom. Certainly not one to whom they confessed, but some worldly kingdom. That document was not, was not a radical document. It simply said the church serves Christ. How could you not sign that? How could you not agree with that? Now, with all due respect to T.S. Eliot, I believe he was about 150 years or so too late raising his point. From philosophers and thinkers such as Rousseau to Hegel to Marx to Nietzsche, even to more modern philosophers and sociologists like Mercuse or even Dawkins, there's a long line of cultural forces driving further and further away from the truth of Jesus Christ and the life lived in faith. The point Eliot was making, of course, is that civilizations don't exist in a vacuum, and they don't just happen. They're formed. They go down one path, or another because of people, the citizens. Where was the church in the 1930s? Well, we need to remind ourselves that the church is made up of people. That's us. People who chose to follow a higher authority. Not culture, not the government, not their stomachs. We are citizens of heaven. Our mind is set on Christ, not earthly things. As Jesus said very clearly, my kingdom is not of this world. 
Remember, he said that before Pilate as he was being condemned to die. Whether cultures or governments or earthly kingdoms or whatever take on the look of Christ's followers depends for the most part on the people following what they profess to believe and acting it out in their culture and in their workplace, in service and in government and in daily life. Is it easy? Absolutely not. As I said, the forces of our culture make following Christ a challenge. What does it look like? Well, there's much debate today about involvement of Christians in the public sphere, whether that's schools or government or workplace or whatever. Navigating those choppy waters is a challenge, and it's going to look different for each one of us. But let me offer just a few examples. First, when the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus on the issues of taxes, you know the story. His response was, show me the coin used for paying the taxes. Whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. We are to give Christ ourselves. Everything else in the world, it's Caesar's. St. Augustine framed this in his Two Kingdom Theology, and he wrote at length about it in his classic work, The City of God. In it, he contrasts God's kingdom with what he called the city of man. Let me try to condense it this way. The pagan is a citizen of the earthly city and loves these things as ends in themselves, as the highest good. The Christian, however, recognizes that worldly goods are not ultimate, yet uses them as opportunities to love and serve God better. How do I, how do we view our worldly goods? We know what they are. Are they objects of our love, our allegiance? Well, the second is Paul himself. Remember, he's writing this letter from Rome because he took advantage of his citizenship as a Roman to appeal to Caesar rather than be handed over to the Jews who were trying to kill him. So while we are citizens of heaven, we also live in the here and now under laws and privileges of the earthly kingdom. We should not neglect those when they serve the causes of Christ. And third, as Christians, Christians of another kingdom, we will feel like aliens in this world. That becomes more and more obvious in our postmodern world. As aliens, I find it helpful to reach back to the prophet Jeremiah writing when the Hebrews were in exile in Babylon. Now, I know many of you have as one of your favorite verses, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. But I like to back up in that chapter just a little bit to verse 4. Here God says this, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. As aliens in this world, it's going to seem like we are in a constant time of trouble. God tells us, just carry on with life as God has called you to, and remain in him. Live out your faith in your little corner of the world. And again, that's going to look different for each one of us. Paul's final reminder to the Philippians is one we too need to remember each day. He says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who 
by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. In the end, all the worldly stuff of this kingdom is meaningless. Rubbish, as Paul put it. And by his power, our sinful and broken bodies will be restored, they'll be freed and transformed into to glory. Never stop living in that truth. We as Christians have struggles. Life can be difficult and messy. Our society is fractured. We are aliens in this world but called to a higher purpose and allegiance to a higher authority. So let me close with this. I often quote C.S. Lewis because, well, he's just so quotable, I think. So let me close. He said this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. We profess to be followers of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. It's so easy to fall into that middle ground of partially living in this world and kind of living in the kingdom of heaven. But if our faith is true, how we live and how we serve is of infinite importance. Am I, or are we, living that way? You know, there's an old adage, a boat doesn't sink because the boat's in the water. It sinks because the water is in the boat. Well, I have to ask, how much of the world is in me? But you may object. If it wasn't in the water in the first place, then it would never get the water in it. Well, that's true, but then it wouldn't be a boat. It wouldn't be out doing what it's created to do. It would not be fulfilling its intended purpose. So, live out your God-intended calling in the world. But remember, you are citizens of a different kingdom, called to serve a higher authority, knowing that we are truly free and that our salvation in Christ is assured. Let's pray. Lord, we are people prone to wander. We confess our love for you, and yet we find ourselves still looking back to the temptations of this world. Quicken our hearts to follow you daily, onward and upward. Strengthen our faith that we will stand firm as citizens of your kingdom, that we might be witnesses to your love and for your glory. We pray this in the name of your Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.